Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about researchers and their journey in academia. Today we have Curtis Chan, who is a PhD candidate at the Kirby Institute's HIV Epidemiology and Prevention Program. Now, Curtis studies HIV prevention in gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. But before we get into that, we've been uh, away from the podcast for a little while. So uh, swing it to Imtiaz. What, uh, what have you been up to? Why, have you, why haven't we recorded one for a while? <laughs> um, so I was wrapping up my clinical trial for the PhD. Um, got all participants through. And shortly after that, had a trip to the European Congress of Sports Science, which was hosted in Paris this year. It's one of the two largest exercise science conferences um, on the calendar. This one, European. And after that, had a little bit of time off in sunny North Queensland, Cairns, before coming back to get stuck back into the PhD. Yeah, nice. Yeah. What about you, Felix? What have you been up to? Uh, lots of long days of imaging <laughs> cancer cells and, and the responses to different treatments. Uh, also had a little break and climbed some mountains in Patagonia, which was really awesome. Nice. But good to be back and yeah, back into the swing of it. Um, yeah, having fun. How about you? Uh, I was in Berlin for a conference um, and did not get into Burgheim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, let's get started. Um, oh, Curtis, well, I feel like we should ask you, what have, what have you been up to? Have you been, and you've been to a conference in Brisbane? Yeah. Is that right? So I was recently at the International Aid Society uh, Conference for HIV Science, and I was able to present an oral presentation, which was really cool. Um but I'll get more into the specifics throughout the podcast, I'm sure. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, so let's start off as how we usually do. How did you get to where you're, you are now doing your PhD? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate in uh, University of Sydney, doing a combined Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Arts with psychology as the science major and then sociology and Japanese as two arts majors. So I ended with three majors. And at the time, when you do a psychology degree, there's a little bit of a choice about if you want to do clinical or research or other, you know, things that aren't related to psychology specifically. Um, and I kind of had the mind of, oh, maybe I want to go into uh, clinical psychology. So if you're in Australia and you want to be a clinical psychologist, the pathway to that is fairly uh, laid out in front of you. And one of the things that you really needed to do was to do an honours year. So I did that. And then uh, my honours degree has nothing to do with my PhD now. I did that in experimental uh, cognitive psychology and the psycholinguistics of reading. So Ooh. very different um, to anything to do with HIV prevention or public health. But in that year, we had a little bit of coursework and that involved a little mini seminar called uh, LGBTQ plus in healthcare. And from there, we had to do some assignments about a topic that we wanted to look at. And I just kept coming across these papers about um, PrEP and uh, HIV and uh, kind of this really interesting data set called the Gay Community Periodic Survey, which I now work on. And um, when I finished my undergraduate and my honours year, I just sent a cold email out to my supervisor uh, and just asking him, hey, can I get involved in research somehow? Uh, and he said to me, you know, are you looking for a PhD? Are you looking for work? And uh, I ended up I wasn't ready to jump into a PhD straight away, so I was doing casual research assistant work for about a year, uh, but that was like two days a week here, two days a week back at my old uni with the psycholinguistics job. 
Um, and then I did, while I was a casual RA here for the Gay Community Periodic Survey, um, one of the other investigators on that project uh, works at the Kirby Institute. So the, the GCPS is in the Center for Social Research and Health in the Faculty of, um, back then it was just the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, now it's a bit broader. Um, but the Kirby Institute's under the Faculty of Medicine. And he was looking for uh, some, a project officer to be full-time for a year, and I did that. Uh, so I was working just in research for a whole year, um, no no PhD, none of that. And then, <laughs> uh, and then by the end of that year, it kind of became clear that I really enjoyed doing the research part. Um, and I realized that the next logical step would be to, you know, formally apply to do the PhD. And that's how I got my start. <laughs> for, for people who don't know, and me included, what, what's actually different about being a project officer and then taking into a PhD role? That's a really good question. Um, so, a project officer is usually there is an established project for you to jump onto. I know that's a lot of PhDs will also have established projects that their supervisors are already kind of developed and you just help uh, conduct the experiments or, or do the work. Um, I was hired to kind of be ad hoc on a bunch of different projects that my supervisor needed uh, help with and that involved writing papers, that involved doing a lot of data analysis, um, but when you are just a, not just a PhD student, but when you become a PhD student, you have a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more control of what you get to work on. And there's a bit more room for you to learn and do stuff, right? Like when you're, when you're at a job, you know, there's obviously learning on the job. Um, but I could, you know, spend whole days just going down, um, you know, YouTube rabbit holes or I'm just reading just to kind of get my knowledge on the field. Whereas at work, it's a little bit hard to justify that. So mm. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it, it kind of gave you the springboard to then jump into the project, right? Was it a similar sort of field? Yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah. My, my supervisor at the Kirby Institute was just in HIV prevention. Uh, and it was a lot of the work that I did with both of my supervisors um, naturally kind of led to my topic. And um, I think I developed it because of that work. Uh, yeah, so it was, I think, a, a kind of, I think everyone's PhD journey is a bit different. Um, but this one for me was quite, I was very lucky that I was able to get that foot in the door with the casual RA job and then the full-time project officer job and then turning that into a hmm. um, PhD long-term. What about, well, what parts of the RA work and then the project officer work led you to feel like, yes, I want to, I want to do more of this. I think that when I started doing the, just the casual RA work, it was menial, but the team was really great. And again, there was a data set that I was really interested in. Like, you know, this, this gay community PRX survey has existed since I was born in 96. And these are like, you know, uh, these four-page massive surveys about sexual health and sexual behavior. And like, you know, I was able to answer questions um, or I had questions that I could answer using this data set about, you know, um, how many sexual partners are people having and uh, how often are they getting tested for HIV and other STIs and things like that. So um, I think the combination of the people being really great I think the work was interesting enough for me. Uh, in particular, I found that I really liked writing papers and doing the data analysis. 
And then I also felt like the work I was doing in some way was, you know, making a difference. Uh, I think the compared to the cognitive psychology stuff back in my undergraduate, um, that was very like theoretical, um, not as applied. And now this stuff, I get to look at policy and preventing uh, HIV in the real world and talking to, you know, government stakeholders and community organizations mm -hmm. about how we can do this better. So yeah, that's what kind of attracted me to research and being in a research role has um, really interesting uh, uh, ways you can kind of help with the, the HIV response. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a nice segue into what it is you're doing for your PhD. Tell us a bit more about the project. Yeah. So um, when I started the PhD, it was really looking at the role of social networks in gay and bisexual men and how that uh, impacts their HIV prevention outcomes. So um, what we found in some of our earlier data sets about uh, HIV, a lot of people who are on PrEP, so this is pre-exposure prophylaxis or uh, the medication you can take before you acquire HIV to prevent it. Um, you know, we're very blessed in Australia that we have that and it's subsidized by the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. But, you know, we, we're looking at the, the type of people who are taking PrEP, the type of people who were um, going regularly for HIV testing. And we kept finding this really weird thing where a bit of an artifact of uh, of the survey that I was working on. The first two questions of the survey are, um, how many of your friends are gay men and how much free time do you spend with those gay friends? And we found that just people who were, had a lot of gay friends and spent a lot of time with them um, seemed to be really engaged in um, health, sexual health services and healthcare, um, but also were more sexually active. So that, that kind of made sense as well. And a lot of HIV prevention in Australia um, has really been built off the back of a strong community response. So people have touted the gay community in Australia as being really central to the HIV response that a lot of places in the world don't have as well as we had it. Uh, but that being said, there has always been a group of people who've never seen themselves in the quote unquote gay community who may not benefit from the HIV prevention messaging that targeted campaigns for gay men specifically. Um, you know, they may not see themselves in those campaigns and therefore they might be less likely to go for testing or take up prep and so on. So that was kind of the crux of the initial part of the development of the project. And then since then, I've kind of been a part of different, a lot of different projects about PrEP and HIV. Can you just touch on that? Like why, why is that the case? I think I saw in, in the papers you, one of the paper you sent over that one of the reasons was that due to acceptance, people, um, you know, gay and bisexual men had friends that were not necessarily gay or bisexual, right? And the spaces in which they, so can you touch more and more on that and why that's the case? That's a curious finding. So, the short answer is we don't know, um, but the more complex answer is that when we think of the success of the HIV response, so Australia is actually a world leader in HIV. We have um, about 500 and fi 555 new diagnoses this year. So in the whole country, that's less than 600 cases of HIV. And, you know, we're on track to being... Uh, you know, one of the first countries to 
potentially eliminate the transmission of HIV, which mm. is very exciting. Yeah. But the thing about that was that a lot of people, and this is coming from you know, people I know from the sector and people who talk about it is that a lot of the people who took up PrEP, who took up HIV testing, were the ones who were really community engaged and the ones who knew someone who was on PrEP or was able to talk about it or lived in the areas where there were a lot of sexual health services. Um, so what we're finding that there are a lot of people who are now coming up in the new diagnoses that are not in these um, kind of gay centers of Australia. Uh, and trying to figure out how we can reach those people. But I have to really preface this by saying that, it, you know, with anything that is in a context of like a sociological phenomenon or um, kind of all these big structural factors, it's really, really hard to say it's one specific thing, right? Mm. So, you know, someone saying that they're really connected to gay men or they live in, you know, Oxford Street or Pran or Brunswick or whatever um, means that, that could be a proxy for so many things. It could be a proxy for SES. It could be a proxy for um, just general social support. Mm. Um, but my PhD is trying to figure out, you know, some of the relative contributions of all these factors and how we can leverage some of them um, for people who aren't as connected. So as a sort of broad overview, what are some of the patterns of, of PrEP use? Uh, so in Australia, we have as of the end of last year, um, about 60,000 people who have ever been prescribed and dispensed PrEP, which is quite a lot. Uh, mm. I'm, it, I'm not sure if people can understand the scale, but um, in our surveys of gay and bisexual men, um, you know, we get about like 7,000 7, to 9,000 uh, gay and bisexual men completing our surveys every year and nationally. And about 30% of them, maybe 35% of them, said that they take PrEP. So a third of people said that they mm. were taking PrEP in our surveys. Not necessarily a nationally representative sample. They're people who we aren't going to reach. Um, but that's still a lot of people. And there have been, <laughs> there's been so many studies looking at who are these people, um, why do they take PrEP, what are their perceptions of PrEP. And I also look at uh, what people know about it and um, particularly how the Australian HIV response adapts to new developments with PrEP. So PrEP is not... Um, stagnant. It, you know, people are, there are new drugs being developed, new technologies being developed. Um, in Australia, we refer to PrEP as the oral pill. People know that quite well, but in the last two, three years, recently there's been a two-month injection that's been shown to work to prevent HIV. Um, we see other things down the pipeline, uh, you know, implants, um, longer-acting pills, and in fact, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, a vaginal ring is used for PrEP. So all of these things are called PrEP, but in Australia, most people would think of it as the pill. And are there certain barriers that, uh, that prevent people from taking PrEP, uh, like costs or um, you know prescriptions, things like that? Yeah, so in pretty much most of the world, PrEP is a prescription drug. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the biggest populations that we're seeing in new HIV diagnoses are uh, people who are recent migrants. So um, these are people who don't have Medicare, people who, mm. um, you know, are international students or, are, you know, maybe um, not living close to sexual health services. And prep for someone with Medicare costs about $30 for 30 pills. Someone without Medicare, it's about four or five times that amount. 
And if you think about particularly, let's say a group like international students um, who are here to come study, uh, who may not be making a, a large amount of disposable income, um, it's quite difficult to justify spending your money on preventative medication rather than saving your money for to go see the doctor when you actually are sick. Mm. And it's ongoing daily kind of thing? Or? So this is the, the interesting thing is that uh, when it was first established, you guys are going to get into the real weeds because I'm going to get very specific <laughs> and it's my research area. Um, That's the point. <laughs> we, we can turn the microphone off. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I recently presented at a conference about this. So when PrEP was first established in around 2012 was when the clinical trials kind of first showed efficacy. Um, it was only initially recommended to be taken daily. But then in 2015, um, a clinical trial in France showed that there was a way you could take PrEP around the time of sex for cisgendered gay and bisexual men um, that was effective to prevent HIV. So that it's called on-demand PrEP or event-driven PrEP or 2-on-1 PrEP. And the reason why it's called 2-on-1 PrEP is that you need to take two pills two to 24 hours before sex and then one pill for the following two days. So in Australia, most people still take it daily because it was introduced daily and a lot of um, PrEP users kind of kept going on with their usual habits. Um, but in some data that I'm looking at now, we're seeing that uh, more and more people are using the event-based regimen. Um, so, you know, last year in our uh, sample of about uh, 3,000 PrEP users per year over the last four years, um, it grew from 7.8 of 7.8% of PrEP users in 2019 saying that they were using an event-based regimen and this had tripled to 24.7%. So nearly a quarter of the PrEP users said that they were now using an event-based regimen. Regimen. So it's not just a daily medication. I know you just asked mm -hmm. a really simple question, but I went this whole, whole <laughs> um, specific thing because I love talking about event-driven PrEP. Um, I think having anything to reduce pill burden, reduce mm. the costs of it, um, particularly for people who find daily medication here really difficult. Mm. Um, I really like talking about adventuring prep. Is, is there, um, maybe this is like a common question, but are there side effects of, of taking prep? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so you would need to check for lots of side effects. If you, if you need to check your kidney function and liver function, um, and, you know, some people report, you know, getting stomach aches or, um, other kind of small side effects that usually go away or things that you can get used to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it's not, it's pretty safe. It's, it's completely safe. Like there's, yeah, you know, I see. but yeah. there, there are people who um, will go see their doctor and then the doctor goes, nah, you, should, you probably shouldn't be taking it mm -hmm. daily. That's like with, with every medication, right? There's always some small subset of the population yep. that has a adverse event. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like we didn't even comment on it, but can you comment on the efficacy of this? Like, it's a pretty incredible drug, right? And yeah, yeah. It's, um, probably like most places would say, it's about ninety nine point nine percent effective, like near one hundred percent. And at, at preventing acquisition of HIV. Yes. So the look, I'm not a pharmacologist. Uh, I have to learn a lot about pharmacokinetics and reading pharmacokinetic papers when looking at prep. But yeah, it's um, particularly it's very effective. Um, for men who sex with men uh, in particular, uh, there is some, um, so the event-based regimen, for example, I was talking about is still only recommended for cisgendered um, gay and bisexual men and other men who sex with men, uh, particularly because 
for people assigned female at birth, uh, the drug interacts a little bit differently with vaginal tissue. Um, so it takes more drugs to uh, to reach protection in um, vaginal tissue than it does for rectal tissue. So that's mm -hmm. why um, there's some different recommendations depending on um, kind of biology and gender. Are there equivalent drugs for females? So they would still take the same one. They would just need to take it for longer at the start. So for men, if you want to initiate prep, and this is very, this is new stuff in the last like couple of years. Um, you know, if you ask prep users a couple of years ago, they wouldn't have said this, but um, because of what we know about event-based dosing, men who have sex with men can start just with two pills and then they're ready to go for the next, like they wait two hours and then they're ready to go. For women, they the WHO recommends a one week lead up. So you would need to take it daily and, and women have to take it daily as well. So they won't be able to do this two on one. Wow, two hours, it's fast. <laughs> well, some people think it's, there was some research done in a bunch of different places. Um, I've seen saw some stuff in Taiwan, Thailand and a lot lots of West Africa that said that um, planning to take prep was really difficult for people, but other places also in West Africa and in the US were like, oh, it's really easy to just like to take two pills two hours before. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really, really interesting space. I don't think the dust has settled quite yet on how we can best effectively mm. get people using that regimen. So we talked a little bit about some of the barriers. What about um, how HIV and PrEP use has been stigmatized for, for people? Yeah, so HIV stigma is such a is such a really interesting case. So one of the other, just to put a pin in, it, in that for a minute and just go back on why mm. I like this area a lot, is that when I was looking into research areas, I felt like HIV was the really like this interesting nexus of epidemiology, public health, but also social research, mm. stigma, um, social justice, and activism, um, and it's kind of association with the queer community. Um, was just so interesting and so many like moving parts that uh, that really, you know, it's really difficult to entangle and really hard to uh, tackle because there are so many parts. Um, but I think because of that, it's really dynamic and really interesting. To answer your question about HIV stigma, uh, so research that was done in actually here and other places, but people from the Kirby and in fact, my supervisor did work on this. Um, we found... We, I wasn't part of this. <laughs> they found that, um, so HIV treatment, right? So someone who already has HIV um, has become, become so good in the world that you could reach levels of viral suppression. So um, where you're, you can't detect HIV anymore in a blood test. Mm. Basically you have so little of it that it's, you know, but you need to be taking kind of consistent medication to keep that up. And because they found that in a bunch of studies with what we call serodiscordant couples, so where a couple, one person is a person living with HIV and one is not, um, they found that even amongst like a giant sample of, of couples, I wanna say like 500 in Australia, uh, in the Australia, Thailand, and one other country that I'm forgetting, <laughs> and then this other big one in the UK, um, found that like, you know, amongst thousands of couples, they were having so much sex that, you know, wasn't even protected by a condom with someone who was living with HIV and there were like no infections pretty much. Um, assuming that uh, as long as that person remained virally suppressed. Mm. And because of that, the from that evidence, there was a movement um, 
and there is a movement that's called U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable mm. that is looking at trying to reduce HIV stigma by telling people, hey, if you get tested for HIV, if you're on treatment, that means that you can't pass it on. And in fact, the National Association of People with HIV, or National Australian <laughs> People with HIV Association, sorry, NAPWA, <laughs> um, recently just put out a public health campaign trying to tackle stigma. This is the first time there's been a, a campaign tackling HIV stigma because for a lot of people, the only thing they know about HIV is the Grim Reaper ca campaign. So, um, mm. and it's really, to me as someone kind of stepping out of my research hat and putting on my advocacy hat, um, I think that we, everyone should be doing more to educate themselves about um, people living with HIV. And I think a lot of people are still nervous and scared around them, but, um, I've, I've said this on my TikTok and personally out in the world that I have had sex with people living with HIV. I've had a lot of them. Um, and I've tested for HIV very frequently. And as far as I know, I'm still negative. So, um, you know, there's trying to come up with ways to tackle that stigma for people living with HIV, as well as making sure that HIV stigma doesn't prevent someone from going to go seek health services. So. Mm. Um, that fear of HIV means that people are less likely to go to the clinic and find out their status, which is really important as the first step to treatment, to prep and other things. So you've talked lots about, you know, following Felix's question about stigma and prior to that, lots of large scale studies producing really good quality data. Let's talk about some of the things that you've been doing to disseminate that information because often what happens with a lot of academic research that's where it stays within the walls of that institution right um but and this reminds me of our last chat with josh and you know that chat was about vaccine uptake so there's some similarities there right so what are some of the things that you have been doing personally and you mentioned tiktok to get this information out there to the community yeah so um I'm a big avid TikTok user. I'm what you would call chronically online. <laughs> and I, to me, so the reason I started doing this TikTok about my PhD and about kind of HIV and sexual health more generally, um, cause you know, I was just scrolling through TikTok and I kept coming across creators that were really inspiring and educational. And I just was, I just kept thinking, you know what? Let me give this a shot. Let me try that. And some of the early ones were not good, uh, or you know, I feel like I was still finding my footing. But um, and I'm not gonna say that I've got like a giant following or whatever. You know, I've got about like three thousand ish followers on uh, TikTok, and um, I've got a couple of you know, um, couple of videos that are pretty well viewed. Um, but some of the sometimes I can't even pick which ones will do well because. Um, to your point about kind of getting academic research out there, um, sometimes I'll just look at a paper that I just think is interesting, something that's not even mine, uh, and I just want to talk about it. And one of them was from people at the Kirby looking at how viral suppression has influenced population-level HIV incidents. And I just talked about this paper as, as succinctly as possible, and it got like 10,000 or 18,000 views on TikTok. And, so, and people really liked hearing about it, and I just thought... This is why I keep doing the things that I do because I hate and I absolutely hate the ivory tower of academia. <laughs> and in particular, I feel like 
the research that I was conducting um, or that, I, that I'm a part of or the research that I get to see is really directly relevant to a lot of people's lives. Mm. And it would really benefit them to know, for example, about event-driven prep, um, that they don't have to take it daily. Mm-hmm. Um, or that they should go for HIV or STI testing more frequently. So that was kind of um, some of the drivers behind that work. And because of that, you know, I kind of cross post a lot of things to Twitter and um, for any aspiring academics out there, I know Twitter or X is a bit of um, a crazy space right now, but Mm. uh, I think social media in general is a really useful tool to not only disseminate your work to the community, but also network with your professional peers um, and not just peers, but people who might uh, give you a job in the future. And that certainly greased the wheels during this recent conference to be able to talk to people who I'm like, yeah, I've seen you around on, <laughs> on you the, in the comments section. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you retweeted that or um, I've DM'd you about my word or score or something. So <laughs> yeah. It seems like you've been, you know, making TikToks for quite a while. What are some tips that you found that mean that you're able to communicate better to people who don't have a science background? Yeah, so it's only been maybe like a year and a half since kind of, it's a bit longer than that, but um, the the first TikTok I made about my lit review for my PhD, my first PhD paper um, was about, yeah, a year and a half ago. My tips would be that if some of the, the basic stuff, like don't use jargon, like trying to make it as simple as possible, I think that kind of, is a given, but some of my more specific ones about TikTok and uh, in the age of really short form video is that you, when we write academic papers, typically we do um, intro methods, results, discussion, whatever. Um, For me, I think it's actually more interesting for the viewer to start with the results, maybe the methods. And even I kind of get this a little bit wrong where I do the methods a bit first, but basically cut out all that intro, you can do a little bit of interpretation, but really the results is the big headline and then talk about the implications of those results. Um, some more practical advice would be, you know, for, you know, I don't know how long this advice will still be true, but um, I like to try to keep things to, you know, less than two minutes, less than a minute if possible. Um, and that's really hard for a lot of people to explain their work in less than two minutes, but you, watching myself talk for a long time and you can hear me being really long-winded on this kind of long form thing. But when I'm looking re- looking at my own recording, I have to really scrutinize every single word I'm saying, is this actually important for this person to know? And often the answer is no. Um, and you just, and once you practice a little bit and you, you do it a bunch of times, you kind of figure out like what is, what is the one thing? And I can only really say one thing to this person and what do I want it to be? And how can I say that one thing effectively? It's cliche, but less is more. hundred <laughs> percent. No, I think it's, um, it's really great, um, great work that you're doing. And, I, and obviously feeds back to what we were discussing earlier that I guess younger people feel less connected and um, with this information. And so I guess that's maybe your way of advocating for and, um, uh, you know, spreading this information around to the the people who are on TikTok, which I guess typically younger people, right? Yeah. So there's, I'm really just going to go off on these old, big old, long tangents, but um, 
So one of the big things that I was looking at in one of the papers that I wrote, the first one for my PhD, was that um, this kind of social engagement with gay men amongst gay bisexual men um, was young, was lower amongst younger participants. And, you know, we could speculate why that would be. Um, some other research and other settings have pointed towards kind of uh, more acceptance of uh, queer people more generally, and that means that um, younger people are more able to have a more diverse social network where that wasn't afforded to people, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and that means that some of that community stuff about sexual health might get lost with those people. And that was also part of the driver of, of going on TikTok. You know, um, we advertise a lot of our research studies on Facebook and a lot of people, a lot of young people, you know, under the age of 25 are not using Facebook. They're increasingly on other platforms. Um, so I was experimenting a little bit with TikTok and figuring out if we could reach a different demographic than our usual um, kind of recruitment pathways. But it also, I keep thinking about, you know, there are people who are my age and younger who, and, you know, in some ways me included, that really don't kind of get why HIV is related to um, the gay community in Australia and elsewhere. And, you know, if you ask our parents, if you ask anyone, you know, even 10 years um, older than us, like they would be kind of be taken for a given, or at least they would know something about it. Whereas I think a lot of young people won't. And it's, really interesting to see how do you message sexual health to this group that isn't as um, kind of cognizant of that all the time. And I guess as you're saying, like the, the problem, which is an incredible achievement, is becoming like the the, the infection rates of HIV um, are um, dropping, right? Or they're, they're being reduced. So I guess in some ways there might be a, self, a false sense of security of like, oh, you know, it's not as much of an issue as it, as it was back in the 80s, so why should I worry about it? But I guess when you're trying to, these massive public health campaigns, it's those final stretches that are the, the sort of the more challenging, right? And yeah, and that's the thing that the HIV sector in Australia is coming to, to um, grapple with is how do we reach those people that weren't reached for the last hmm. two or three decades? Um, and that's kind of part of why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is trying to figure out who these people are and then hopefully um, be able to use some of those results to go back to community and um, government partners and say, hey, uh, maybe you should target your campaigns a little bit differently um, or maybe we should think about how to change policy to make PrEP more accessible. You know, recently um, HIV treatment, so people living with HIV, uh, recently became available to people without Medicare. So, you know, you could imagine that a scheme like that could exist for PrEP, for a preventative measure, but, um, you know, that's a bit hard to say at the moment, I'm just speculating. Uh, but to me, that would be like an amazing goal to, to be able to get PrEP more accessible to people mm -hmm. who could really use it. I like how you said earlier that you have your two hats, the advocacy hat and the researcher hat. And it kind of seems like TikTok is the bridge between those, those, those hats because you're able to advocate for your research. Um, I, I guess, would you agree with that? On, is TikTok the only place that you kind of feel like you can do that? Or are there other social medias that also allow for that? And how, how, do, how do they differ? Is TikTok particularly good at this? That's a really interesting question. And I don't think I have 
a really good prepared answer for that. Um, but to the point of, am I doing it anywhere else? Twitter to a, to some degree, but you, that's a bit of an echo chamber insofar as that I connect with other researchers and advocates um, and learn from them. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And in particular, I feel like I've learned a lot from um, activists, particularly activists um, who are also people living with HIV. Uh, and that the TikTok stuff has let me talk about topics that are sometimes a little bit outside of research, but also includes research. So that explanation I gave to you guys earlier about U equals U, I was able to condense a little bit down to you know a two, three minute video um, to try to get people to go, hey, this campaign has roots in science and this is why it works. Um, so maybe now that you know how it works, you'll have more faith in it. Mm. Um, and in terms of other platforms or you know, is TikTok the best for it? Um, I think that it works for me. It, you know, there are people who are not comfortable putting their face on everything that they do. Um, I just happen to be vain enough that I- uh, And a beautiful face as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely not, no. Um, not this ugly mug. But uh, but to me, you know, it, it's. I think it is important to be able to connect with people um, and, you know, having my face out there as a part of that. Uh, but if, it's a podcast, if it's a blog, if it's, you know, um, you know, your LinkedIn, your GitHubs, you know, there, there are ways to get your, uh, your message out there that isn't paywalled behind a journal mm -hmm. article mm -hmm. or, um, and I think there's a lot of work. I think academia could really do better at that. And I think it's a really underutilized, um, or under focus area of our work is to disseminate our research. Hmm. Um, but to me, you know, experimenting, experimenting with TikTok, who knows how long TikTok or any of these social media sites are gonna last for, but um, you gotta keep trying. Mm -hmm. And and I think that I've been very happy with the, re the response I've been getting. Um, some people, you know, have even crazier, um, you know, uh, output so they put out videos more frequently. You know, I kind of just do it whenever I feel like it mm. um, or when a paper comes out that's relevant. Um, so yeah, I, I really think that we could be doing more. Mm. And I think you guys are doing a great job as well with this podcast to kind of get other people's um, work out there as well as give people the opportunity to talk about that work to a broader audience. And, you know, baby wheels, you know, in a very supportive environment. And I think, I think, I've been trying to convince people to join TikTok, like to get to talk about academia stuff. And the biggest thing is always, I'm too scared or like, <laughs> I don't know how. And I'm like, just, you just got to do it. dance very well. That's <laughs> <laughs> you gotta take some classes. Yeah, I should. I should. Uh, do you use TikTok uh, like us mere mortals? You know, like I, are you scrolling on your For You page for Absolutely. hours? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I still do. And Chronically there, online. Like chronically online. That. There was a time where I had two accounts, which was like my personal one and my <laughs> academic one. Yeah. But then I just ended up using my academic one all the time. So my For You page like is now on my academic profile is my main profile. And it's like not just mm. sexual health, um, not just research, but it's like foodie stuff and like, you know, um, <laughs> um, you know, clips from shows. And, and you wouldn't like want to miss any like academic memes or anything because it got too <laughs> straighty. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and there's some, you know, like I said, there's some really great stuff that people are doing out there that is funny and engaging and, you know, lets you, I, you know, completely an aside to any of the, the research or the advocacy stuff I was talking about, um, I recently, or a couple of months ago, put out a video called My Income as a PhD Student. Mm. And that was another way to kind of like help, you know, potential students, like people who might be listening to this podcast, um, think about like, well, what are the practical implications of my life starting this, you know, three, <laughs> four, five year commitment? Um, and how can I do it? So, um, yeah, I think it's it's an it's another avenue to you know get your expertise out there that is again not guarded by paywalls or reviewers. So let's kind of come back to your PhD project and how much time have you got left? Have you got some ideas of what you'd like to do afterwards? Um, yeah, that, that's a, a lot to think about. Um, so I'm going to do a peek behind the curtain with um, some really kind of like inside baseball stuff about a PhD. Um, so while there's not officially at UNSW or in any university in Australia, um, we don't really have what is known colloquially as a thesis by publication. But typically a lot of PhD students will... Um, replace a chapter of their thesis with a published journal article. And um, that is what I intend to do. So I'm intending to write a string of um, publications that I will include as one big uh, thesis at the end. Mm. I've already published a couple, which I'm very proud of. Um, and then I'm working on a couple more papers. So I just uh, submitted revisions for um, another paper about um, uh, gay Asian men, which is a a bigger Asian men survey, which is another priority population. Um, we find that when I said that migrant gay and bisexual men are a priority population, a lot of it, the largest proportion of those people usually from um, Asia and South America. So that was one thing I was doing. I'm looking, uh, I'm dipping my toes into qualitative research. So uh, I know you had um, you know, some other qual researchers on this podcast. Um, I'm a typical variant quant guy. I like my looking at spreadsheets and data sets. <laughs> um, but I've got to interview people and kind of ask some questions about um, their experiences of healthcare and experiences of community in Australia. And this is amongst um, uh, recent migrants who are gay bisexual men. And then uh, I've got a couple of other little projects here and there. I, I, I had put out my own survey and I've collected all the data and that survey was really focused on um, who are your friends? Do you get social support from friends who are gay men, friends who are bi men, friends who are, um, you know, cisgendered heterosexual friends, your family, and how connected are you with what you think of as the LGBTQ community? Um, and then looking at whether or not those feelings of um, connection translate to or are associated with things like their testing habits and their use of PrEP. Uh, sexual behavior and, and stuff like that. So I'm trying to write something out of my own survey. And then, uh, so for people listening, um, not only am I a PhD student, but I also do a little bit of paid work with my supervisor, who is also my boss. And we recently put out this giant survey. I do a lot of survey work, as, as Lachlan would know, um, about uh, what people want out of prep across the Asia Pacific or the across Asia and Australia. Um, and this was a sample of about uh, 17,000 um, gay bisexual men uh, in, you know, about 15 countries. And 
about 1,200 transgender women. Um, and well, I'm writing up the report on that and writing up papers from that as well. Um, and as for the, what's after academia, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who start a PhD thinking that they're going to leave academia, like they have no intent of staying in this, you know, wild world. Um, but that's, I, that's one way of putting it. Yeah, that's, one, that's, yeah, that's the diplomatic way of putting it. Um, but I, you know, I like it so far. Um, you know, it's hard to say where I'll be in a year's time. So I, my plan is to submit around this time next year. Um, but, you know, if there's a job for me here, great. If an opportunity comes around from other places, cool as well. And, it, you know, it's... But at the moment, I'm planning an academic career. People might say I'm crazy, but, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the intent. But, yeah. again, for listeners of the podcast who, you know, wherever you are in your stage of um, your career, your studies... Um, I have also talked to a lot of people who started a PhD and are doing really amazing work, particularly in the HIV response, but also elsewhere, that are not in academia anymore. Mm. You know, people who are epidemiologists with New South Wales Health, who, um, people who are regional advisors for PrEP across the um, Asia-Pacific region with WHO, UNAIDS, you know, um, multilateral organizations. Like there's so, there's a big bright world out there and really it's kind of up to you how you get there and what path you take. But that can't be answered by anyone besides you. Mm. So um, I hope that is good advice for anyone listening. <laughs> yeah. Very well put. Absolutely. Yeah, really good advice for anyone even starting out on a, on a research, research journey. Yeah. What advice would you have for yourself um, if you could give it when you started your PhD. So, you know what? I listened to a, a podcast episode just in preparation for this. I know you asked <laughs> the exact Just in preparation, <laughs> yeah. not, not out of anything else. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I listened to a, a lot of the early episodes like like way like long time ago before I had any thought I'd ever be on it. But um, I just, as preparation, I was just like, <laughs> what, what kind of questions are they going to ask me? Um, and I was thinking about this and I don't think I have any really good advice for my younger self. Not to say that I um, don't think I'm smarter about my work than I was back then, but um, I think that, not to say like everything happens for a reason or, or everything was everything happened the way it was meant to happen, um, but I think that, like I said kind of earlier on in the podcast, everyone's PhD journey is so different that small changes or like, you know, these decisions really like change a lot of how you would um, conduct yourself for the next couple of years. And if I told myself, you know, oh, you know, work harder or not work harder or focus on this thing or don't focus on this thing, then I think it, just, it would be completely different to where I would be now. Like, um, you know, in, in particular, like there have been some projects that I've got to work on that if I told my younger self, like, that's going to be like hell, like, don't do this. But now I'm seeing kind of like the fruits of that labor only coming up to fruition now. Like, it's, you know, it's really hard to say. Um, and I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say to people is that I, I don't think I feel confident enough that I could give my younger self um, any really good advice other than don't stress out too much, go with the flow. Um, 
she'll be right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really good advice <laughs> that you've given just there. You know, it's uh, give things a nudge and see where it takes you. <laughs> I think in particular, people who think about going academia are probably more likely to be like perfectionists or mm. um, really like very driven or you know academically minded and you really need to let go of that very quickly because mm -hmm. you'll find that your experiments don't work you don't get enough people who are in oh, your yeah. participants in your study um and you just have to make it work and you learn that and you learn that very quickly um so i would just prepare people that you know if you're listening to this and you go Oh yeah, but my experiment will be perfect. Like I don't need to worry about that advice <laughs> that you'll have this nugget in your mind and you'll go, you know what? It, they all had problems with their studies and they've all managed to get through and they're all doing really well. I don't need to worry about it as well. Awesome. Yeah, nicely said. All right, well, uh, you'll see us again for the next episode, but thank you so much, Curtis. That was a great chat. Thank you, Curtis. So, yeah. Curtis, just before we go, what, what's your TikTok? Oh yeah, my TikTok and my Twitter handle is Curtis X Chan. So just my first and last name with an X in between them. Um, yeah, you can come follow me there. Um, and I will, you know, hopefully promote your podcast on my, my <laughs> yeah. channels whenever it comes out. We'll try and remember to put the handle in the posts. Definitely. Oh yeah. yeah. Cool. You can find us on Twitter or X at Resbytes Podcast as well. <laughs> yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me.